Hello and welcome to the Foundations Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Link, and this is the third in a series of episodes about Christians and politics. This week, we're looking at biblical examples of choosing the lesser of two evils and pragmatism in the Bible. Far too often, it seems our elections are this terrible decision between the two major parties. Now, approached pragmatically, of course, we must do our utmost to achieve the best result. Besides, as we're often told, unless Jesus himself is on the ballot, every election is a choice between the lesser of two evils. But what does the Bible teach about this? Are there any biblical examples of choosing a civil authority from between two evils? Well, because Israel had judges chosen by God and kings, there aren't a lot of examples of people choosing or electing between the lesser of two evils in the Old Testament. And none that I could find in the New Testament. God, it seems, is less concerned with earthly governments and more concerned about the kingdom of heaven. I found no prescriptive commandments regarding choosing civil leaders. Now, last episode, we looked at the minimum biblical standard for civil authorities. And like that episode, I'm going to look for examples in history from which we can draw lessons that might apply to our situation today. Now, these are descriptive in nature. They tell us what happened, not what we must do. But... Those who do not learn from history are likely to repeat the same mistakes. Now, in my search, I did find an article from around 2012, which is whenever Romney and Obama were um, going up against each other. This article claimed to show three examples of voting for the lesser of two evils. And so here are the examples that the author mentions with my commentary. So the first one was Absalom versus David. Now, what you need to know is that this is an attempted coup. 2 Samuel 15 outlines how Absalom gains the support to try to overthrow his own father. Now, David was not perfect. Among other things, he had a man killed to cover his affair with that man's wife. And his troubles with Absalom, who himself had been excelled for killing his half-brother after that brother had raped his sister, also stemmed from within these issues within his own family. But David was the king of Israel. And David was a repentant, restored man. Second Samuel 11 and 12 tells the whole story. In fact, Acts 13, 22 describes David as a man after God's own heart. This wasn't an election, and it certainly wasn't the choice between the lesser of two evils. It was an attempted coup. All right, so the second example was Adonijah versus Solomon. Now, Adonijah is spelled A-D-O-N-I-J-A-H. In 1 Kings chapter 1, David is on his deathbed, and Adonijah decides that he should be the next king. But David has already told Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan, the same one that confronted David about his own affair and murder, that Solomon is to be the next king. Now, this isn't secret, though it's not really a, a public yet. The announcement hasn't been made. Adonijah knows about it because he doesn't invite Nathan He doesn't invite any of David's mighty men or Solomon to the event where he planned to take the throne. Now, since Adonijah was well-liked, he likely could have become king. Except Nathan discovered what he was doing. He knew that Adonijah would kill Solomon and his mother. So both he and Bathsheba went to David. And after David learned what was going on, he made the official announcement that Solomon was his heir. Adonijah heard about this while he was at his own feast where he was trying to take over the the kingdom. Uh, it's actually kind of funny if you read that passage. Um, so again, uh, this wasn't really a choice between two evils. In fact, it wasn't even an election. Solomon was designated to be the heir by the king. And at this time, that wasn't even an evil choice. 
It's not until the end of his days that Solomon turns away from God. Now, uh, that leads us to the last example between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. You can find the story in 1 Kings 11 and 12. Solomon has turned from God, and Rehoboam is Solomon's son and assumed heir to Israel. So God sends a prophet, Ahijah, to Jeroboam and tells him that Israel will be split. Ten tribes will be for Jeroboam to rule and two for Rehoboam. Again, this isn't an election. It's God sending word through the prophet. It's judgment on Solomon. 1 Kings 11.39 says that God will afflict David's line, but not forever. So, was Jeroboam an evil? Now, we know from verse 28 that he had some leadership in Israel, and Solomon trusted him to lead the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And that's it. We do know that God made Jeroboam a promise. He said, And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And that's in 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight. So Jeroboam did not have to do evil. He was not evil at this time. He had a choice. Unfortunately, after an ugly division of Israel along the lines that the prophet predicted, Jeroboam did not obey God. And 1 Kings 14 describes another prophecy from Ahijah concerning Jeroboam's line because of his disobedience. From this time onward, the northern kingdom, those 10 tribes, never had a king that followed God. Judah and the northern kingdom never reconciled, and both Rehoboam and Jeroboam chose to do evil in the sight of God. So this is the closest of the three examples to choosing a lesser of two evils. So let me ask this question. Even though there was a prophecy, what if the tribes of Israel actually did have a choice in who to follow? Now, we knew how the division would end up because of the prophecy, but the people made the decision. So what was the result of choosing between those two? The result was that both leaders moved their respective kingdoms away from God. Neither choice would have been a good one. The Israelites may not have known that Jeroboam would do this, but this pattern continued throughout the northern kingdom's existence. Judah sometimes had kings who actually tried to follow God, but often the kings who also did evil in the sight of God were leading Judah. What if there had not been a prophecy? What if the people in Israel truly could have changed the course of history in this moment? Instead of choosing between the tyrannical Rehoboam or the idolatrous Jeroboam, what if they had just said no? What if they had demanded a king who followed God, one who was like David, a man after God's own heart? What if they have rejected two bad choices and chosen a good one? What would the history of Israel look like today? We don't know, because that didn't happen. What we do know is that God eventually let Israel be conquered by Assyria and Judah conquered by Babylon. Now, he protected the line of David, maintained a remnant, and Jesus was born into a world ruled by Romans. God eventually allowed his chosen people to be captured and carted off as spoils of war because they kept choosing to worship false idols and do evil in the sight of God. So if Israel had a choice in this situation, what should they have done? Would it not have been better to change course and not end up a conquered nation? Now, I for one don't want to see America keep sliding into the hole that our current political system has dug for us. What on earth makes us think that God will preserve our country as we blindly choose between two bad candidates for leadership that are thrown up by whatever party? 
What makes us think he's going to preserve our country when he didn't even protect Israel, his chosen people? Time and time again, Israel's leaders and her people turned away from God and eventually allowed them to be conquered. Do we really think that continuing to select from bad choices will result in good for America? Now, even though the New Testament doesn't report examples of choosing lesser of two evils in civil authorities, there is one passage that relates to doing something bad in order to achieve something good. Now, bear with me because this is heady stuff and it can be hard to follow. In Romans chapter 2 and 3, Paul's writing, he's writing about the accusations that preaching about grace would actually devalue the law. Essentially, that doing things that go against the law, like not being circumcised as a believer, um, because believers are under grace, actually devalues the law. So at one point he says, and why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Romans 3.8. Now, this sentiment is the same as echoed by Romans 6, 1 and 2 that says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Not just one sin, but sin in general. Not just one evil act, but do evil in general to do good. The Greek word for good in this verse is agathos, which means good, profitable, benevolent, useful. Paul is talking about doing things that are bad for good benefit. Now, here's some commentary on this passage. Matthew Henry's concise commentary says, Let us do evil that good may come, is oftener in the heart than in the mouth of sinners, for few thus justify themselves in their wicked ways. The believer knows that duty belongs to him and events to God, that he must not commit any sin or speak one falsehood upon the hope or even assurance that God may thereby glorify himself. If any speaks and acts thus, their condemnation is just. Albert Barnes notes in the Bible says, Whatever is evil is not to be done under any pretense. Any imaginable good which we think will result from it, any advantage to ourselves or to our cause or any glory which we may think may result to God will not sanction or justify the deed. Jameson Fawcett in Brown's commentary says this, Such reasoning amounts to this, which indeed we who preach salvation by free grace are slanderously accused of teaching that the more evil we do, the more glory will be bound to God, a damnable principle. Thus the apostle, instead of refuting this principle, thinks it enough to simply hold it up to excreation as one that shocked the moral sense. Doing something bad for a good result? No. Condemning that action is just. Evil is not to be done under any pretense. Paul is using this as a shock to show how terrible the claims about devaluing the law are. He is not encouraging people to do evil at all. I cannot find a single positive example of doing something bad in hopes of a good result in the Bible. Choosing between evils never ends up with a good result, just a less bad one. How bad will we let things get before we reject this perpetual binary cycle? I cannot find any biblical evidence that suggests a Christian must choose the lesser of two evils in an election. If I may be so bold, don't choose the lesser of two evils. Find something or find someone that you can vote for. But what about the pragmatic choice? Shouldn't we just bite the bullet and make that pragmatic choice? 
I mean, voting for the lesser of two evils is a very pragmatic approach. And basically, you evaluate the situation based on circumstances and you make a decision. A third party candidate is a long shot to win anything. So if you don't want the worse candidate to win, you vote for the slightly less bad candidate who actually has a shot of winning. Now, pragmatism is actually something that we use every day. Where are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? Tons of mundane decisions are made all the time based on pragmatic choices. There are times when pragmatic choices are good. In fact, the only time a pragmatic choice wouldn't be good is if it violates what you know to be true or what God wants from you or what you know God wants from you. So I went searching for examples of pragmatism in the Bible, positive or negative. People that were pragmatic, people who weren't. Now, I'm sure I missed some, but here's a list of what I found. In the Old Testament, Abraham had his wife pose as his sister in Genesis 20. It was pragmatic for Abraham, who feared for his life, to say Sarah was his sister, but God had other plans. Israel spying out the promised land, Numbers 13 and 14. It was pragmatic to refuse to enter the promised land, and the result, God kept Israel in the wilderness until an entire generation died. Israel defeats Jericho, Joshua chapter 6. A pragmatic person would say marching around a city would have little effect on defeating it. Moses' mom did not kill him in Exodus chapter 2. It wasn't pragmatic to hide a male infant, but Israel was ultimately freed because of her actions. Hosea didn't divorce Gomer in Hosea chapter 3. A pragmatic Hosea would divorce a woman who returned to prostitution, but God used his love as a symbol for his own relationship with Israel. Jeremiah kept preaching in Jeremiah 25. Now, a pragmatic prophet would stop preaching after a few years with no results. But Jeremiah kept after it for 23 years. Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6. A pragmatic Daniel would not have ended up in the lion's den. The fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. A pragmatic Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not have ended up in the fiery furnace. Solomon takes wives, 1 Kings chapter 11. The wisest man on earth decided it was pragmatic to marry and take concubines from other nations, and he ended up worshiping false gods. Okay, let's look at the New Testament. Ananias and Saul in Acts chapter 9. It would have been very pragmatic for Ananias to stay away from a renowned killer of Christians, but then he would not have been there to begin discipling a man who would eventually write half the New Testament. How about the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15? It would have been pragmatic to give in to the Jewish believers and just make Gentiles follow the Jewish customs. How about Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12? Pragmatism actually says that older people know more than younger ones. How about Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5? We'll probably have to look this up, but Gamaliel actually gave some very bad but very pragmatic advice in this passage. The only positive reference to anything pragmatic comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Although believers might have the freedom to do something, we should pragmatically choose not to do it if we can cause others to stumble and sin. So generally, pragmatism in the Bible is not a good thing. Many, many times God asks us to do things that just don't make sense based on circumstances. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in others' lives. I've seen it time and time again. In the Bible. Now, some of the examples are specific to a particular command from God. Now, normally, you wouldn't expect walls to fall down um, by marching around them. And it normally really isn't smart to present yourself to someone who kills the followers of Christ. 
But other instances are just examples of followers of God honoring God in every circumstance, even if it doesn't make sense. Uh, Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They actually didn't know that they were going to survive the fire. If you look at Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, they knew God could save them if he chose to, but regardless of the circumstances, they were going to choose to honor God. Now, luckily, no one is asking us to bow down to an idol. They aren't threatening to kill us if we don't. We're just trying to figure out how to vote. Pragmatism is the foundation of situational ethics and the heart of postmodernism. When we value pragmatism more than the things that God values, well, that's what has led us into this political wilderness. Making a pragmatic choice between two evils will always end up with choosing an evil. When presented with a choice where the pragmatic answer is different than the answer you know lines up with what the Bible teaches, what will you do? If you believe that there is a minimum standard for civil leaders and the candidate you're considering devoting for doesn't meet that minimum standard, will you make a pragmatic choice or will you keep looking for another candidate? So who should you vote for? Elections are heated. People who don't fall right in line on the right and agree to vote for whoever is nominated, agree to vote for those lesser of two evils, have been called un-American, holier than thou, pharisaical. In 2016, I was told I was asking too much of a candidate. I was told I was going to elect Clinton. I was actually asked how I could face my children knowing that I didn't do everything I could to stop Clinton. Now, I have friends who voted for Trump. They've looked at his record and character and decided he represents their values. He is who they want to lead our country. And I applaud them for finding a candidate they can support. I have friends who have taken the lesser of two evils approach. I also have friends who believe that while they greatly dislike the Republican nominee, they must support a Republican platform that more closely matches with what they value than the Democrat platform. So they vote for GOP while wishing that the nominee was someone else. It's a minor distinction, but it's one that's important to them. And I have friends who are voting Democrat for many of the same sorts of reasons that I just listed. So if you ask me who to vote for, I will tell you this. Pray. Find candidates that meet the minimum standard, then evaluate their values and positions on issues that are important to you, and vote for the one that best fits your values. See, that's the beauty of our system. We each decide how to use our own vote. I do not think it is your duty as a Christian to vote for the lesser of two evils. I can find no scriptural backing for this position. I understand why people make this decision, but it's not a biblical imperative to do so. In fact, the evidence I have found suggests that a pragmatic decision that goes against your values is not what you should do. I would welcome biblical examples I've missed that show the lesser of two evils or pragmatic choices in a positive light, but I can't find them. But what if the worst evil gets elected because you or I voted for a third party? What if it's Ralph Nader 2000 in Florida all over again? You can make a convincing argument that based on exit polls, that if Nader hadn't been running in Florida in 2000, Al Gore would have won Florida and therefore won the 2000 election over Bush. But that's not what happened. So I have one question. Do you believe God is sovereign? If you really believe that, then you know he has a plan. Now, I don't know what that plan is, but I can promise you it isn't for you to violate your own values with a pragmatic choice. 
What if believers in America said they would no longer listen to narratives from the right or left? Starting right now, they would find candidates who reflected what they value and only vote for those people. What if they refused to be bullied into voting for the lesser of two evils? What if on the local, state, and federal level, we all voted for people and didn't choose the lesser evil? What would our country look like in a few years? Something to think about. Okay, that's enough politics. Uh, Next episode, I want to talk to you about media and how to filter what's being presented to you through your own biblical worldview. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating. That helps people find us. If you didn't enjoy the podcast and you're really mad about all that political talk, feel free to send me an email and complain. Or if you have questions, go ahead and send me an email and maybe I can answer them for you on a later show. Send them to scott at scottlinkmedia.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.